Well, welcome to a special episode of the Rethinking Scripture podcast. And today it is a special episode because we've only had guests on a couple of times, and today we have another one. Today's guest is Dr. John H. Walton, who's a scholar and was until just recently a professor because he just retired from his position as professor of Old Testament and the coordinator of Masters of Biblical Exegesis at Wheaton College in Illinois. Before Wheaton, he taught at Moody Bible Institute for 20 years. He specializes in the ancient Near Eastern backgrounds of the Old Testament. And throughout his research, Dr. Walton has focused his attention on comparing the culture and literature of the Bible and the ancient Near East. He's published dozens of books and articles and translations, both as a writer and an editor, including probably his best known book, and I'll let him argue that if he wants to, The Lost World of Genesis 1. So, Dr. Walton, thanks for being here today, and welcome to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. Great to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. You've been teaching at the university level for a large portion of your life. And so having been a teacher myself at a couple different levels, I just wanted to ask, how's your summer going? Because summers are golden usually for teachers. Yeah, with the exception of the COVID years, my summers are generally a mixture of research and writing when I'm here in Wheaton and a lot of travel and speaking, uh, teaching classes in other places. Uh, and this summer has been about the same. Yeah. So really not a lot of difference knowing that you're not going to be going back into the classroom as you regularly would in the no. fall? No, the fall will be different, but summer is about the same as it's been. So what, sorry, to kind of diverge on this for, for just a minute. What's the fall going to look like and how might that be a little bit different for you? Well, it's different because, of course, I won't be in class every day and I won't be grading papers and I won't be going to committee meetings and I won't be, you know, doing those sorts of things that are part of the academic career. I'll still be coming in each day and researching and writing and uh, then have the freedom also to travel and speak as I'm invited to do so. Well, I hope that'll be fun. It sounds like fun. I know you enjoyed your time in the classroom, so on to bigger and better things possibly. You and I connected uh, a couple of years ago when I reached out to you regarding a book that I had been writing, uh, Rethinking Rest. And uh, mm -hmm. that book was my attempt to take some of your work, uh, specifically the idea of God resting on the seventh day there in Genesis chapters one and two. And I was trying to practically apply that ancient Near Eastern idea of that concept, what it would look like if we played it out for a believer. So first, thank you very much for everything you did for me on that project. And secondly, have you had a lot of people try and take some of the concepts that you've introduced in your work and then take them in and build on them in other directions like that? It has happened, not so much on the uh, popular book level, but there have been a number of dissertations that people have done uh, picking up one piece or another of, of things that I've talked about. So um, it shows up on a more popular level book, often in terms of methodology, when they try to take my methodology and apply it. And uh, I mentioned the Lost World of Genesis 1. I think Maybe in lay circles, uh, that's probably your best known work. Uh, that's how people are most often introduced to your work. But if you had to pick one or two other titles that uh, if people have read that first book and maybe are looking for a second or a third to get introduced a little more to you, you have a couple of suggestions that people might pick up? Yeah. Well, of course, there are six books now in the Lost World series and a seventh one is just ready to come out. So lots of times people move from one to the other of those. But I think if people really want to get acquainted with my work in general, uh, there are kind of three different directions they could go. If they want to understand more about the ancient Near East, they could use my book, Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament. That's kind of an introductory primer to that whole area. 
if they want to understand Old Testament theology more, I've got a book for that. It's called Old Testament Theology for Christians, and that's where they could get that information. And if they really were just interested in my hermeneutics, my methods for approaching scriptural interpretation, uh, my book that just came out is called Wisdom for Faithful Reading, Principles and Practices for Old Testament Interpretation. So that's a place that people could get that. If they just want to understand more about kind of the cultural context for the Old Testament, then they could get something like the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible, uh, for which I was the Old Testament general editor, along with Craig Keener in the New Testament. So those are different ways that people could get into the information. Yeah. And I'll just say that all those are very approachable from multiple levels. They're very scholarly works but they're also written in a way that uh, just about anybody can enter into the conversation and get caught up to speed fairly quickly and understand. I have found, uh, being a teacher and a pastor, I have found that uh, once we dive into the Old Testament, people get a little lost. They get a, they're not quite sure exactly of their footing, uh, just I think because we spend a lot of time, in churches at least, in the New Testament. We look at the Gospels, we like to look at Paul a lot, and then we're not quite sure what to do when we get in the Old Testament. So thank you for your work, and uh, is that something you have found as well? Sure, and that's really the premise behind the book I just mentioned, Wisdom for Faithful Reading. It starts out with the idea that lots of people just have trouble when they get to the Old Testament. They don't know what to do with it. And so that book is trying to address that need. Yeah, good. So another thing that uh, you and I are working on, um, kind of on the side, is a trip to Israel in February of 2024. And I'll just say, at the time that we're recording this episode, we still have three rooms left. Uh, oftentimes we count how many people that is, but uh, we only have three rooms left. So that's space for either three to six people, depending on how many people are in each room. So... One of the main questions that I hear is about uh, often about Israel trips is about the safety over there. It seems like there's uh, quite a bit of unrest going on at any given time that's covered in the news. And right now, if people have been keeping up, there's uh, demonstrations in the streets due to some changes in the government that's going on. Uh, you were recently over there on a different trip. And uh, how are things on that trip for you? You know, I've never been on a trip that, that we've had any troubles. And I've been on 15 or 16 different trips. Um, basically, the people who are helping us over there uh, keep their ears to the ground. If there's going to be any kind of difficulty, we get steered around it. But for the most part, I mean, anything can happen anywhere, of course. But for the most part, uh, the problems are localized. And you can just steer clear of those localized things, you know. Somebody who's uh, coming to America for the first time uh, might have plans to visit Springfield, Illinois, and hear, oh, there was a shooting in Chicago. We better not go to Springfield. And, of course, those of us who live here know that that would have nothing to do with any of that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, those, you know, those same kinds of factors are, are involved. Yeah, it's a little uh concerning sometimes for people when all they see is what's on the news. And I have a similar right. response. Uh, I have a similar response when I talk to people. If uh, if you were outside the United States and all you got were the headlines on the news about the United States, you might not choose to come here either. So, uh, right? yeah, exactly. So I'll just mention now, if uh, anybody has interest in knowing more about that upcoming trip to Israel, February of 2024, they can just head to RethinkingScripture.com, and right there on the front page, you can follow the links. And when that trip fills up, I'll update that page and let people know that it's no longer available after that point. So, well, the main purpose for having you on today's podcast is to allow you to respond to a few questions. So, uh, a little background. About a month ago, uh, I'm on Facebook uh, I don't think you're on Facebook, are you, Dr. Walton? Nope. Nope. <laughs> That's okay. That's good. Uh, you're just like the uh, new generation. The younger generation isn't on Facebook either. So you're, you're really connecting with that younger crowd. 
But about a month ago, <laughs> I created the John H. Walton discussion group. There wasn't one before uh, on Facebook. And in that group, uh, shortly after I started it, I posed the question, if you had the chance, what would you ask Dr. Walton? So I received several responses and they are covering a variety of topics. And if it's all right, I'll just jump into those questions now. Is that okay? Sounds good to me. Yep, that's why we're here, right? <laughs> so the yeah. first one is uh, from a guy named Colby Hammer. Uh, it's a guy I know <laughs> really well. He's got a great sense of humor. And he was the first one to post. And he uh, brought a question up that is uh, asked in uh, the movie, The Search for the Holy Grail. Uh, by chance, are you a Monty Python fan? Uh, I don't know if I'd call myself a fan, but I've enjoyed some of his movies, including that one. Okay, so the, the first question is, what is the weight of an unladen swallow? <laughs> and I'm not sure I really expect a response. <laughs> well, the, there's, there's a very important response. Its weight is less than a duck, and so it's not a witch. <laughs> Very good. Yes, you are a fan, or at least familiar with that one movie. That's great. <laughs> okay, so moving on. We, I just thought we'd start with a kind of a light one. So uh, they're going to get progressively uh, more theological <laughs> as we go. Uh, Hashim Warren uh, from North Carolina asked the following question. As a follower of Jesus... Should I adopt how ancient people thought? Uh, when I read teachings that say Jews in Jesus' day thought like X, this, uh, so that's why the scripture says why I struggle with what to do with that knowledge in my own walk with God. And then he gets a little more specific. There was a little back and forth uh, discussion within the group. He got a little more specific uh, with an example. He says, I grew up with a conception of body and soul that's more platonic than Jewish, or so he's been taught recently. So is the Jewish view of a soul better? Is it okay to see my soul in the way I grew up, or should I be changing? Well, uh, I think that we do not have an obligation to think the way that ancient Jewish people thought. That would be really problematic. Um, if that were the case, we'd have to believe there's a solid sky. We'd have to believe that all our cognitive processes take place in our heart and liver and kidney. Uh, we'd have to believe all sorts of things that we find totally um, fantastical today. So certainly, uh, we're not under obligation to think the way that they thought in the ancient world. Uh, this comes into a discussion which I enter into in a couple of my books and the difference between reference and affirmation. Reference are the various things that the authors refer to as part of their culture. And really everything in the Bible is reference at some level because they're always interacting within their own culture in their own world and time. Uh, but we separate those references, which include things like solid sky, uh, we separate those from things that we call the affirmations of the text. That is, where the text now is fulfilling its role as scripture and giving us the word of God. And so we draw those distinctions. Now, of course, the, the obvious difficulty is, how do we know what's reference and what's affirmation? And that's the task of interpretation, to try to figure that out. And there are various rules of thumb that you can use for that. And I talk about some of those in Wisdom for Faithful Reading, how we can start trying to sort that out. But when it comes to a specific question about body and soul, uh, again, I would say that's more a, an element of reference than of affirmation. Um, the New Testament writers, the Old Testament writers, by the way, those were different, right? Old Testament writers thought differently about those things than New Testament writers did but both of them are thinking in conjunction with the way people thought in their world. And so it's no surprise that New Testament authors are reflecting a platonic way of thinking. But I would still say that's a matter of reference, not affirmation. And therefore the Bible doesn't tell us how to sort that out. And that's something that we have to try to do sort of with, um, 
with our own uh, resources and conversations in community. Yeah, so uh, scriptures talk about the soul in maybe a couple different ways, uh, Old, New Testament. So we can't mm -hmm. abandon the idea of a soul, but we could maybe change the way uh, and understand it differently based on how people have understood it differently throughout time and history. Is that kind of a good summary? Right. Human, the configuration of human anthropology, all of those things, um, again, the statements about them in Scripture tend to be culturally embedded. Yeah. Very good. Next question from Hector uh, Grijalva. Uh, he asked this, what does Dr. Walton understand about Genesis 3.15? Enmity over the offspring of the woman and the serpent. One would strike the head of the other, and the other would strike him on the heel. I ask this because when Jacob was born, and we get that from Genesis 25, verses 23 through 26, he was born doing the action as if he was the offspring of the serpent. He's grabbing the heel of his brother Esau, in other words. So Hector's question is, what is the author trying to convey when we read those two stories in Genesis? Well, I wouldn't really read them together. They both have the heel in common, uh, but that's the only part they have in common. Uh, the verb used for Jacob grabbing uh, Esau's heel is not the same as the verb we have in Genesis 3. And um, it's a realistic reflection, observation. Um, and therefore, I wouldn't treat them as the same. There's no reason to equate Jacob with the serpent. There's no reason to equate Esau with the seed of woman in 315. So I wouldn't be inclined to draw those together just on the passing, I would say, casual fact that they both use the word heal. Um, in 315, the uh, enmity uh, between them means that they're going to be at each other. They're going to be in conflict. And I think what's important is that it uses the same verb for both of them. That is, the strike on the heel and the strike on the head uh, are the same verb, and both of them are potentially mortal blows. Uh, you could kill a serpent by stepping on his head, but maybe you wouldn't. Uh, and a person could be killed by being bitten on the heel by a serpent, but maybe you wouldn't. And so the idea is that there's going to be this ongoing conflict uh, threatening between them, and that's happening because of this enmity between them, generation to generation. Okay, because you and your seed. And so this uh, pits uh, the humans against what the serpent represents in an ongoing struggle. Now, that's interesting because um, one of the ways to read the serpent, it's the way that I do it, it's not necessarily a traditional way, uh, is that the serpent is a chaos creature. And therefore, a creature that uh, stands outside of the ordered world in some sense. When you read the biblical accounts, I'm sorry, the ancient Near Eastern accounts of creation, often the gods are struggling with the forces of chaos and defeating the forces of chaos in order to create. Here it's interesting that uh, God in Genesis is not fighting against chaos. There's no battle, there's no conflict, uh, but rather he gives humans the role of um, doing battle with the forces of chaos in order to bring about order. So that's how I would take that particular passage. Yeah, and the, the story of Jacob and his brother, uh, the struggle that they have is probably uh, worthy of more focus than the actual grabbing of the heel at the birth, uh, because that struggle between Jacob and Esau probably uh, lays out uh, the Genesis 3 passage a little bit better in narrative form. Well, it also, I mean, it's a play on words for Jacob's name. Um, I mean, his name doesn't mean heel. Uh, it's a play on words with the word for heel. And so there's, there's some language things going on there as well. Yep. Very good. Louis uh, Barcelo, uh, who is in Uruguay, uh, asked the following question. I want to know about Genesis 3, 16 through 19. So just the next uh, few verses after the ones we just talked about. 
and specifically the Hebrew word that's often translated as pain and toil in 3.16 and 17. I'll just read those. Uh, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth and in pain or toil. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. He's wondering if there are some maybe better translations based on the etymology of the word. Could it be more like anxiety or worrisomeness uh, about their new situation uh, there, Adam and Eve? Sure. In my my work on Genesis, both in my commentary uh, and in Lost World of Adam and Eve, that's exactly the direction that I took. I said, this really isn't dealing with pain per se, it's dealing with anxiety. And uh, one of the clearest elements for that is that first line in verse 16 is, I will greatly increase your etsev uh, and in conception. And of course, conception is not painful, but it's filled with anxiety, especially in an Israelite culture where if a woman couldn't conceive a child, she could be sent away and would have no social network to catch her. And so um, conception is filled with anxiety. And then, of course, the whole process of pregnancy is filled with anxiety. Um, will my child be carried to term? Will it survive birth? Will it be stillborn? Will it be okay? Um, will I survive birth? Uh, mother mortality was high in the ancient world. And so there's a lot of anxiety surrounding that whole process. So I think that's exactly right. And of course, that carries into verse 17 as well, the anxiety that comes with trying to grow enough food, especially in environments that aren't necessarily hospitable to your agricultural uh, efforts. Yeah, and uh, I actually picked up on your work and commented in my book uh, that in addition, in the context of Genesis 3, the new thing also is outside the garden uh, the ultimate uh, destiny of every child is also brand new in that context. And so even when the woman conceives, she's not only worrying about all the things you mentioned leading up to the birth, but also knowing now that the ultimate destiny of that child is death and uh, not inside the yep. garden with access to the tree. So. Yeah. Joel Montez uh, asks the following question, and it's kind of uh, he sets up the question with three premises. So he's done a lot of reading of your work. And these are pretty bold statements, especially if somebody has not read your work. So maybe you'll want to do a brief comment to kind of contextualize his uh, his lead up. But here's his question. He says, if a case can be made that, number one, the book of Job is a parable and two, that the story of Joshua asking the sun and moon to stand still could be understood as an ancient Near Eastern omen formula. And three, if a case can be made that a fish didn't swallow Jonah, but rather that he died and came back to life. So that's the setup. Then the question is, is there a literary disconnect in how we maybe understand the conquering of Jericho? Did the Israelites literally just shout and the walls came down? Or is there possibly another understanding of what happened in that story? Well, I have to nuance a lot of the setup there. Um, first of all, I don't say Job is a parable. I say that it's a thought experiment. Parables are one kind of thought experiment, but there are other kinds of thought experiments. And so I, I don't say that Job is a parable. Um, I do say that in Joshua 10, that we're dealing with an omen and uh, uses the terminology of an omen. Um, I do not say that the fish didn't swallow Jonah or that he died and came back. I don't go for either of those options. So I would have to nuance uh, some of those sorts of things. But the point is still the same. The point is that we're dealing with trying to understand the literature as the author intended it to be understood. Uh, if the author of Job intended it to be understood as a thought experiment or even as a parable, even though that's not the direction I go, then that's the way we want to read it. But we get our lead from the literature. If Joshua is using omen language, well, then that's how we ought to read it. And But we have to get our lead from the literature. Whatever is happening with Jonah, uh, we have to try to understand it in light of the kind of literature that it is. And those things aren't always straightforward, that everybody's going to agree, and there it is. 
So um, in every case, though, we ask, what is it that the author wants me to understand? And that's the same question that we would ask at Joshua and Jericho. Is this what the author wants me to understand, or is he using some other literary device or rhetorical device or something else that I should be picking up on? And at this point, I don't know what kind of rhetorical device they would be using in Joshua that would suggest that, no, this really didn't happen that way. So um, in my attempt to track with the author, I would say, no, I'm, I'm going to assume that they walked around the walls and that they fell down, because I don't know of another way to read that literature that would make, make sense of it in their terms. Yeah. So sometimes people, you know, say, oh, God caused an earthquake to happen. Um, sometimes people try and answer the miracles within the Bible uh, with natural phenomena and the timing is the miracle. Is that a possibility with Jericho? Well, I think there too. I mean, certainly it's a possibility that there was an earthquake of some sort and still the timing would have to be perfect. Um, but I think that even then we're asking the wrong question. Um, when we talk about a miracle, we're talking into a worldview of metaphysics that has categories, supernatural and natural. And miracle is something that can't be explained by the natural and therefore it has to be supernatural. But that metaphysical worldview is ours, it's not theirs. They wouldn't have had anything that they called natural. Certainly there were things that were normal, things that were ordinary, but in terms of saying natural meaning God didn't have anything to do with it. They don't have such a category. God was involved in everything. So even if something happened that we could defend as being natural, that wouldn't change things a bit because they would have believed that God is just as much involved in the things that we call natural as he was in the things that we call supernatural. It's our terminology problem. It's not their metaphysical problem. Yeah, it's hard getting out of our cultural river and starting to swim in theirs, in yeah. other words, using your terms. So, yeah, Steve Bell from Michigan asked the following. Uh, he says, I just read The Lost World of the Torah, which is another book in that Lost World series. And he says it was awesome. And it proves that the law is not legislation or or moral advice, but is the teaching or wisdom for the people of God to reflect God's holy reputation before the nations. Is this a consensus opinion uh, shared by Jews and Christians, or is this just a Christian doctrine? So, and then in some further follow-up, he adds to that. He said, I'm struggling with the progressive heresy of the Pharisees turning the wisdom into legislation and then legalizing the wisdom, and then Paul maybe riffing off the heretical law and not the wisdom of the Torah. Uh, so... He says, I'm not sure if I'm getting this right, and can you please advise? Well, uh, on the first point that he makes, um, this is not a consensus shared by Jews and Christians, and it is not a consensus of Christian doctrine. This is not the way people have viewed it, because I've come to those conclusions through an analysis of ancient Near Eastern texts, which uh, have elements of legal provisions in them, and therefore, this is my attempt to try to understand what we call the law, what I call the Torah, um, in its ancient Near Eastern context. And, and that's all the point. Um, so that affects how we're going to read those aspects. In terms of what Paul is doing, of course, Paul is addressing issues in his world. We don't expect anything less. And we don't find anything less. Uh, there are issues on the table in his day. And whether they came out of good readings of Scripture or bad readings of Scripture, doesn't matter. They're the issues on the table in his world, and he's going to address them. Uh, so uh, I don't think that we have to be worried that Paul may be um, interacting with a view of Torah as legislation if it's not even that to begin with. People in his day thought that it was. And so that's what he was dealing with. Yeah, he was just so, trying to answer the questions on the table, right? Right, right. Yeah, good. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Did you have anything else there? No, no, that's all I was. That's it. Okay. 
Uh, Paul Robinson from Queensland asked the following. My question is a very specific one on application relating to using the Torah today. Uh, for the Gentile Christians, is the tithe required as a tax? And can the principle of tithing be used by the Christian who reads the Old Testament faithfully? Well, as I've tried to make clear in Lost Word of the Torah, uh, nothing from the Torah is required of Christians. That's because it's in the Torah, which is the covenant stipulations for Israel. It's made with Israel, it applies directly to Israel, and it doesn't apply to anyone else. So nothing is required simply because it's in the Torah, which happens to be in the Bible. Now, as I talked about in the Lost World of Torah, I wouldn't even feel confident principalizing it because my principalizing would be subject to my own selectivity processes. Um, and so I wouldn't even adopt the principles as a scriptural mandate. Instead, we simply ask the question um, on tithing and tax, for instance, is giving back a part of our income to God something that honors God? And that's appropriate for our relationship with him. If it is, that's why we do it. Not because the Torah told Israel to, to tithe. Um, so in that sense, the Torah can help us see what was wisdom for Israel. And lots of that may be wisdom for us today as well. But you can't just take pull the verse out and say, this is what we need to do. And I don't believe that you can even develop a principle from it and say, this is what we're supposed to do. It's broader than that, giving us a wisdom for understanding um, some of the implications for how God asked his people in the past to live as his people and let that help give us wisdom as we think about what we need to do to be God's people. So is it confusing when we use uh, Old Testament terms for our modern day practices? So I walk into a church and I hear the preacher talking about uh, tithing, uh, maybe does a sermon on tithing. And maybe he uses some Old Testament uh, passages to bring the wisdom out of that culture. But by using that terminology, are we inviting ourselves to kind of misunderstand what we're doing uh, using the wisdom versus using the technical device uh, of the Old Testament? Well, it might reflect a little bit of a confused hermeneutic uh, because if we're using that language that had meaning in that context, in that culture, uh, then we can't necessarily just pull it over and expect it to have the same meaning in, in our culture, in our language. Yeah. So uh, next question. Uh, Vernon Goodman from Texas uh, asked this. Dr. Walton, I agree with your assertion that Genesis 1 is not about material origins. However... What seems to me to draw the ancient Near Eastern creation stories together, the Hebrew, Mesopotamia, Egyptian, uh, from Canaan and Hittite, it's not necessarily functions or the order of creation. Indeed, those stories lack consistency in several areas, but the phenomenologies, in other words, what was where and how it was perceived by ancient mankind for an example he gives, see the sun, moon, and stars. God made them and put them in the sky to shine on us. And first, he had to divide the sky from the ground. So the question is, what evidence caused you to skip the phenomenological origin completely, not even mentioning it as a possibility, and go straight for or to the functional origin? And then he says, thank you. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't my intention to skip it. Um, to me, it was rather transparent that they are working from an observational viewpoint. I would use observational rather than phenomenological, but I think they're getting at the same kind of thing. Uh, certainly, they're calling it as they see it, and they're talking about it as they experience it. Um, so I didn't mention that because I didn't think that was open to question or that it necessarily helped us to solve the situation. Um, and so I don't have any objection to that kind of view, but I would elaborate that 
that perspective that they had from observation, or if you will, from phenomenology, is incorporated into the way they thought about the world. And uh, so you have to ask the question, what are they thinking to accomplish through their creation texts? What is it that they're trying to address? They wouldn't say, I'm just trying to address the phenomenology. Uh, certainly it reflects the phenomenology as they would mm. have understood it. But I would say they're trying to address how God ordered the cosmos. Uh, in Genesis 1, Lost World of Genesis 1, I used the concept of functioning. And I think that a better term, it's not a contradictory one, it just communicates better, is order. And so when I talked about function, I talked about God setting up functions, meaning things had a role and a purpose in an ordered system. And it's the ordered system that uh, now occupies more of my, my terminology when I'm talking about Genesis 1, that God is ordering the cosmos. And that includes making it function the way that he wants it to with a purpose. So when we ask, why are they writing this narrative? What are they trying to convey? It reflects their phenomenology, but they're trying to convey, in my understanding, uh, order and the ordering process. Yeah, they're just trying to explain what they're seeing from everything that they know right. or understand. So good. Right. So uh, a lot of your books you write uh, just by yourself. You're the only author on, but some of them you've co-written. And you and your son launched a book back in 2019 with the title Demons and Spirits in Biblical Theology, Reading the Biblical Text in Its Cultural and Literary Context. And about that book, I've listened to a couple of your other interviews. I've heard you say something like it was about 90% your son's work and about 10% yours. Uh, so number one, is that still, uh, did I get that right? And number two, uh, would you have written that book differently or at all without uh, having your son uh, maybe poking the bear a little bit? <laughs> yeah, the, I'd say the 90-10 is probably still about accurate. And um, no, I wouldn't have written it at all. I wouldn't have uh, tried to attempt such a book on my own. Um, I, it, he had done a lot of thinking in his graduate work on the master's level on that topic. And, but he wanted to deal with the ancient Near East quite a bit, and that's not his area of expertise. So he prompted me to write an article about demons and spirits in the ancient Near East. And so I did that, and I was comfortable doing that. I published that article, um, and uh, but then that became a chapter uh, in the book. But m much of the rest of the book, uh, he he was framing on his own. Now at the same time, you know, we talk about Satan and the the idea of Satan and the serpent, and the question of the fall of Satan. Those are things I dealt with before, and I was very happy to deal with them. And we worked together on those sections. But certainly his whole, his whole thing with the New Testament and with problem of evil and all of those things are not things that I, I would have felt that I could write about. But I was really pleased with the work he did. Yeah. It was uh, a challenging book. I read through it and had to reread several portions of it. <laughs> I get to the end of a section and I was like, I think I understand what, <laughs> what I just read. So I was able to go back through. Uh, one of the Facebook group members, Jeremy Smith, has three questions kind of based on the content of that book. So we'll start with uh, kind of the most broad question, which he asks, could Dr. Walton respond to the criticism of his book, Demons and Spirits and Biblical Theology? Uh, a couple of examples he gave, Thomas uh, J. Farrar published a review in the Journal of Theological Studies, uh, published by Oxford Press. I'll put a link in the show notes to that article that's available online, at least the author's version of that. And then he also mentions that Dr. Michael Heiser, uh, before he passed, uh, released a podcast episode critiquing the book. And he also says, I understand if you'd rather not respond to Dr. Heiser's critique, considering uh, that he is no longer with us. Uh, no, I I. On one level, I don't mind. Um, in general, I don't typically try to go out there and respond to critiques. I, I could spend my whole life responding to critiques. 
I do controversial things. And um, when you do controversial things, you have to expect that people will critique it, and that's fine. Uh, you have to expect that people will disagree with it, that's fine. You have to expect that people will sometimes misunderstand it, that's unfortunate. Uh, but it happens. And so, uh, I, like I said, I typically don't, don't go about doing that. So um, I don't know that I would necessarily want to go through Farrar's review point by point. Um, he's going to have some different conclusions, and that's okay. If he didn't buy the, the position that we tried to build, that's okay. We don't expect everybody to agree with us. And so there are always points of conversation, points of of negotiation and things that could be said differently or, you know, and if he comes up with different concerns, that's that's fine. I see that he thinks that we are unjustifiably minimalistic. We don't think it's unjustifiable. And so that those are just the, the ways that you negotiate in the academic world. My feeling is uh, we put out there in the book the best case we could make with the conclusions as clearly as we could lay them out. And then it's up to people to do with it what they want. And we've just tried to put information on the table, offer a perspective. Some people will find it helpful. Other people will get all worked up about it. And that doesn't matter. With regard to Mike Heiser, you know, Mike and I were friends. And um, we had many conversations over the years. Uh, we agreed on lots of points of methodology uh, in terms of the importance of the ancient Near East and reading it in light of its culture. We, we were in agreement with that. But we also had many disagreements about where you go from there and what conclusions could be drawn with regard to various texts. So, for instance, he believed that since the text spoke about a divine council, that there must be one. Um, and for me, that's just like solid sky or like platonic ideas of, of body and soul. Just because the Bible speaks about it, that could be reference, not affirmation. And in that podcast, I was really very confused because Michael didn't seem to grasp this distinction between reference and affirmation, which I was, I was surprised at. Um, there were many times in his podcast where he said, I don't understand how Walton could say that. Or what does Walton do with XYZ passage? And I'm thinking, well, those XYZ passages that you mentioned are actually treated in the book. Did did you read it? You can see what I did with it. It's right there. And if he doesn't understand my thinking, I would have hoped that he would have asked me instead of just talking about how he didn't understand my thinking. So I was I was really confused by it um, that uh, that he came came out the way that he did. So he chose to speak publicly from his admitted lack of understanding instead of asking me for clarification. And that was that was disappointing. Um, so I felt like he really didn't understand what we were doing. And but he didn't invite me onto the podcast to have a conversation about it. So I didn't didn't have that chance to interact with him. Yeah. Well, and I know a lot of people he's been a very popular uh, person to follow for a number of years. His podcast is obviously um, garnered a lot of attention o over the years. And so he's done a lot of good work and he's kind of built a system, um, especially about this spiritual world that uh, people have uh, followed and bought into and uh, understood from his perspective. And so, yeah, I kind of wish uh, you two had had the chance to maybe interact a little bit more uh, about that critique as well. So uh, a couple of follow-up questions from Jeremy. Uh, and they're coming maybe from that uh, Heiser perspective or some of the Heiser teachings. Uh, just to clarify, are there actual spiritual entities? Uh, so even if we may not be able to identify them, that are acting as patron deities that are being worshipped as gods by the nations? That's not something that I think the text decides for us. Uh, and it's not something we can decide from the text because of all this concept of reference and affirmation. It certainly portrays those kinds of issues out there, but it's not really talking about them into the way that we try to sort through things in metaphysics. So I'm not sure that we can arrive at those conclusions. I believe that there are actual spiritual entities 
lest anybody misunderstand me. I believe that there are spiritual entities out there. But Jeremy's question asks if they're acting as patron deities and being worshipped as gods. That's another question. And I can't really address that uh, based on the information I have in the text. Yeah, so maybe in an Old Testament context, they yeah. would have been worshipped as that. But whether they were acting as that is maybe a question we can't answer. Well, the, the peoples, the Babylonians and Egyptians are worshiping what they believe are gods, yeah. what they believe are active spiritual agents. Are they actual spiritual agents? That's what we don't know. Yep. So, and uh, again, a follow-up question to maybe some of these same ideas. How should we understand the plagues from Exodus if the plagues were possibly directed against Egyptian deities? Does it indicate that there are actual spiritual beings behind such deities? No, I don't think it implies that. Uh, the plagues address the world in which they occurred, and they make meaningful points to Israelites and Egyptians based on what they believed. Uh, so... If the Egyptians believed that these were gods, then the plagues are acting against those purported gods. Even if the Israelites believed that the Egyptians' gods were actually gods, same thing. The plagues are operating against them. But that's still working within the world of accommodation. And that doesn't say, yes, there actually were gods. Yeah, good. Well, leaving uh, that topic for a little bit, thanks, Jeremy, for all those questions. Uh, we're kind of taking a different track now. Uh, Frank Fleming, who's from Salem, Oregon, uh, my hometown, and I just got to preface this. Frank is a guy that read my doctoral thesis multiple times. He's read my book. He is one of my biggest fans out there right now. Uh, his question is this. My question is about the dinosaurs. I know who created them, but I don't know why. Well, the Bible doesn't enlighten us about that, so we really don't have much of an answer. All we could do is speculate, and that doesn't benefit anybody. You know, <laughs> basically that's a why did God kind of question. And in my mind, anytime you start a question with why did God, it hardly matters what the rest of the question is, because we either know God's motives by what the Bible tells us, and if the Bible doesn't tell us, we have to guess. And if the Bible told us, we wouldn't be asking the question. So I don't see much point in trying to recreate God's mental frame as he made dinosaurs. Yep. So definitely dinosaurs happen, but we don't know why. And um, hopefully someday we'll find out because I know that's a pressing question for a lot of people. So, yeah. <laughs> hey, when I finished uh, or when I visited you back on the Wheaton campus back in April, I got a chance to sit in uh, a couple of your classes. One of those was your Old Testament survey class with undergraduates. And uh, let me just uh, do a side comment here. Having taught undergraduates in Old Testament survey type classes uh, myself, I expected the undergraduates to be very much more attentive to you than they would have been to me. I get a lot of uh, people distracted, a lot of uh, people falling asleep, a lot of uh, no answers when I ask a question. And I expected something totally different in your class, and it was comforting <laughs> for me to sit in the back of that class and see that uh, freshmen uh, taking Old Testament survey are just about the same, no matter who the teacher is. <laughs> so uh, you just happened to be covering the book of Job that day. I was in class. I don't know if you remember that. And in that uh, class, you told the story of a former student named Kelly, which you've also shared in uh, one of your commentaries. So our last question today from the Facebook group is from Buddy Coffey from Maryland. And Buddy asks, is the Kelly story in Dr. Walton's NIV application commentary on Job, is that available separately in a form that he might be able to share with his students? Unfortunately not. It's there in the commentary and I don't know of it being available in any other, other form. Um, you know, Kelly has a website because she's a photographer and she tells a little bit of her story on her website, but nothing like all the kinds of things that we got into in the Job commentary. So um, 
So no, I don't know of any place where that's available except in the, the commentary. Is there a quick uh, summary you could give just for the people that uh, haven't interacted with that information yet? She's a young woman who uh, was in a car accident when she was 12 and lost the use of her arm. And uh, just by the time she got to college, uh, had had surgery after surgery after surgery and trying to cope with an arm that didn't work and phantom pain and trying to set um, medication uh, levels, uh, just all kinds of things that had given her all sorts of trouble. And so she was in a prime spot to start thinking about the book of Job. And I have my students pick a book of the Bible and write five different papers on that book. And so she picked the book of Job. And so we had interaction with it uh, over that semester and continued then uh, to have interaction as she was just struggling through all of the things that she had to deal with, um, with this health situation. So uh, that's why I asked her to uh, write in the commentary. Uh, the NIV application commentary is designed to give contemporary significance chapter by chapter. And that's difficult in Job because everybody's wrong. And so it's hard to give contemporary significance. So, so, uh, so I asked her if she would write about her story chapter by chapter, and we figured out ways to kind of thread that through as a contemporary significance. It's a very powerful story. And uh, for her, it was something that really helped her to navigate the whole situation that she, that she faced in her life. And uh, we figured it would be helpful for other people as well. Yeah, it's a great story. And I would just encourage people to uh, find that uh, commentary and interact with it. It gives kind of a new perspective to the Book of Job that uh, you often don't maybe get on your own just reading it. So, well, Dr. Walden, that was great. You have answered all the questions I brought, and uh, as expected, you brought unique insight and nuances to light for a lot of people and a lot of questions. So thanks again for being uh, a guest on the podcast, and I hope that you continue to have a wonderful summer and that you're able to find some sort of a new rhythm this fall when you would normally be heading back to your classes. <laughs> thanks, Greg. Yep. Well, that's all for now. And I'll just ask the question, who do you know that needs to hear what you just heard? Uh, why don't you shoot them a message right now and tell them uh, you should really listen to this episode of the Rethinking Scripture podcast.